welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Aaron Ballou, Deborah Landau, Camille Rankin, and Brenda Shaughnessy. You will now hear Tanaya Kraft, Managing Editor at Copper Canyon Press, provide introductions. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for coming to our reading and discussion titled The Women of Copper Canyon Press. My name is Tanea Kraft. I'm the managing editor at Copper Canyon. And what we have for you here today are four incredible powerhouses of poetry. Erin Ballou, Deborah Landell, Camille Rankin, and Brenda Shaughnessy. Let's, yeah, keep that going. So we're going to start with a 20-minute reading, meaning each author reads for five minutes, and then we'll follow that with a discussion and Q&A session. One of the reasons we're all here in this room together is that poetry is vital to language and living. Copper Canyon Press publishes poetry from around the world to engage the imaginations and intellects of readers. Since the first letterpress editions handmade by Sam Hamill and Tree Swenson 40 years ago, Copper Canyon has been committed to publishing a truly representative range of poetic voices. Those voices over the years have included many powerful women, Lucille Clifton, Ruth Stone, June Jordan, C.D. Wright, Lucia Perillo, and Ellen Bass, just to name a few. And of course, these women who sit before you today. Each of these poets has a distinctive voice, of course, and you'll hear that in the reading. But there's at least one quality they all share besides being part of Copper Canyon, and I know this from working with them. They all work like fiends. To prove my point, I'll present first Aaron Ballou. In addition to authoring four books of poetry, co-founding and co-directing with Kate Marvin Vida, and teaching in and directing the creative writing program at Florida State. She's also the artistic director of the Port Townsend Writers Conference and is working on a memoir. Deborah's third book, The Uses of the Body, is hot off the presses. Please come by our booth at 1001 if you haven't yet and pick up a copy. Also, Vita's booth is right next door. Vogue has compared this collection to Richard Linklater's Boyhood, but for girls and women, and O Magazine calls it a thrilling meditation on the passages of a woman's life. Deborah teaches in and directs the creative writing program at NYU. Camille's first book, Incorrect Merciful Impulses, will be out fall 2015, so we're really pretty excited about that. She has served on the staff of the Cave Canem Foundation and now teaches at and directs the Manhattanville College MFA program. She serves as editorial director for the online literary journal Manhattanville Review and sings with the band Miro Mir. Brenda has published three books and her most recent, Our Andromeda, was honored by Cosmopolitan as the one poetry title on their list of best books of the year for women by women. It's pretty impressive to even get a poetry book on there at all. It was Library Journal's Book of the Year, was on the international shortlist for the Griffin Poetry Prize, and was honored as a New York Times Book Review 100 Notable Books of 2013. In addition to teaching at Rutgers University, Brenda is also poetry editor-at-large at Tin House Magazine. So as I mentioned, we're going to have a 20-minute reading. We're going to go in alphabetical order, and they're going to go for five minutes or so apiece. So we will start with Erin. Hi, thank you all for coming. It's a good crowd in a cavernous ballroom. Yeah, I'm just going to read a couple poems. The time limit saves you from my nervous chatter, which is nice. So I'm going to start with a poem that a friend of mine, a wonderful poet named Ashley Capps, 
has a poem that's now called Kindly, which I think is one of the most beautiful poems ever written, and you should Google it when you get home. And that's not an exaggeration. I really think it's one of the most beautiful poems ever written. It was originally called Love is an Emergency. And so I wrote a poem in response to her called Love is Not an Emergency. More like weather. <laughs> Love is not an emergency. More like weather, that is ubiquitous, true or false spring. The ambivalence we have for any picnic flies ass up in the jello, the soft bulge of thunderheads. Right now, the man in the booth next to me at the Nautilus Diner, Madison, New Jersey, is crying but looks up to order their famous disco fries. So the world's saddest thing shakes you like a magic eight ball. And before him, the minstrel who smeared on love's blackface, rattling his damage like a tambourine. I have been the deadest nag, limping circles round the paddock, have flown to beady pieces, sick as the tongue of mercury at the thermometer's tip. But let's admit there's a pleasure, too, in living as we do, like three-strike felons who smile for the security cameras, like love's first responders stuffing our kits with enhancement pills, zigzags, and Powerball cards. I read, to greet is the cognate for regret, to weep, but welcome our weeping, because we grant the name of love to something less than love, because we all have to eat. This is a poem. Uh, there was that anthology called Starting Today that Rachel Zucker, Zucker and Ariel Greenberg put together, which I thought was really interesting, where President Obama's first 100 days in office and his first term, 100 poets were asked to write sort of a poem in real time to what was happening in that moment for those first 100 days. And I, I just loved that project. Um, it's a wonderful anthology if you ever get a chance to look at it. But this was my version, and I guess it must have been the 21st day of his presidency, and it's about the honeymoon ending. <laughs> House Resolution 21-1, proposing the ban of push-up bras, etc. So it goes, the foundation drops, and the ladies are busted. Those old carpetbaggers slouching south. Oh, America, we don't mean to disappoint but every lover comes with a fulsome jiggle, some pudding packed in the U-Haul, a mole we want to believe could be viewed as a beauty mark. But honestly, isn't the honeymoon the boring part? All that lying about. And what is beauty but the absence of symmetry? Better to forget perfection, to remember we were born a nation of blemishes, a posse of strays with cellulite, if Benjamin Franklin were alive today, you know he'd be working a thong and rollerblades on Venice Beach, flying his freak flag just beneath old glory. America, it's time to unsuck those bellies and show our ugly asses. We must learn to want each other in direct sunlight, no more or less than what we really are. You know what? I'm just going to stop there. Thank you very much. Last week, Aaron read at NYU, and the reading was so fiery that the alarm went off and firemen came. That's the kind of power she has. So uh, this is my very first time reading from this new book, and I want to thank Tanaya and Michael and everyone at Copper Canyon for making it with me. It's so shiny. I like it. And um, I'm going to start with uh, the first poem in the book, which I wrote because Michael Wiegers told me I needed a first poem to start the book. So grateful to him for that, too. And I lost my voice, and I was feeling really bad about having to read with no voice. And I realized the book is about the vulnerabilities and frailties of the body, so it's appropriate that I'm failing. <clears throat> I don't have a pill for that. It scares me to watch a woman hobble along the sidewalk, hunched adagio, leaning on. There's so much fear, I could draw you a diagram of the Great Reduction. All of us will soon be way back when. The wedding is over. Summer is over. 
Life, Please Explain. This book is nearly halfway read. I don't have a pill for that, the doctor said. The book is all linked lyric sequences. It's like almost one poem. So it's hard to separate out individual poems to read from or to publish. So what I had to do was to combine sections. So this next one is two sections combined, which the New Yorker carried under the title Solitaire. Solitaire. One summer, there was no girl left in me. It gradually became clear. It suddenly became... In the pool, I was more heavy than light, pockmarked and flabby in a floppy hat. What will my body be when parked all night in the earth? Midsummer, breathe in, breathe out. I'm not on the oxygen tank. Twice a week, we have sex. The live girls poolside, I see them at their weddings. I see them with babies, their hips thickening. I see them middle-aged. I can't see past the point where I am. Like you, I'm just passing through. I want to hold on a while. Don't want to not or forsake. Don't want to be laid gently or racked raw. If I retinol, if I marathon, if I vitamin C, if I crimson my lips and streakish my hair, if I wax, exfoliate, copulate beside the fish-slicked sea, Fill me, I'm cold. Fill me, I'm halfway gone. Would you crush me in the stairwell? Could we just lie down? If the brakes don't work, if the pesticides won't wash off, if the seventh floor pushes a brick out the window and it lands on my head, if a tremor, menopause, cancer, ALS, these are the ABCs of my fear. The doctor says, I don't have a pill for that, dear. Well, what would be a cure-all, ladies? Gin and tonics on a summer night? See you in the immortalities. Oh, blurred. Oh, tumble rush of days we cannot catch. And finally, since this is a panel of women, I'm going to break out a poem about motherhood. In Tin House, I combined two sections, and it was published under the title, The Uses of the Body. In my opinion, handsome Dr. Randy, you are brown-haired and Roman, swift with your hands. Babies are big this year, so way less smoking and drinking, so way more eating cheese. I have someone to give birth to, and he has all the credentials, heartbeat, feet. His father helped out. We decided to make him standing in the bathroom one night. We made him with things we had around the house. We made them with our own pots and pans. I still have the pantry, the pocket, the mandate. It looms there, a child. We set out, and then he went out the right way, head first, and we made it to the clearing. We made it out, then he and I were in a blinking, in a fuzz-down lair. The uses of the body, nursing, lightning, the clear, warm sea. I don't cook but I could make a baby, and he was warm and plump as pie. I dreamed him, and there he was, miniature vast and unhygienic. He was my homework, and I took him home. The baby was pathetic. All he could do was nod a blink cry and open his eyes. The two of us were nocturnal, mostly. In exile, we regressed to a prostrate luxury as if now would never be thirsty or die, not ever, and look at me, all my guilt peeling off. Thank you. It's really great to um, be here with you guys um, reading and feeling like I'm joining this press with all these incredible women writers that I really admire. So, yeah, it's very exciting. So I'm going to read a few poems from the forthcoming book, Incorrect Merciful Impulses. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now better? Is that better? Okay, great. I'm short. What's the name of your forthcoming book? Incorrect Merciful Impulses, coming in the fall. So the first one, uh, this is a poem I've been thinking a lot about 
I'm Jamaican, of Jamaican parentage, and um, I've been thinking a lot about the place of the immigrant in America lately, and, I, and this is kind of my love letter to America, sort of. It's called The Free World. I bind my old grievances to a helium balloon. A long memory I have been warned is a curse. Everywhere I go, someone has something they must say about you. Nobody knows who we are. Wouldn't you say nobody agonizes like we do? Elsewhere is a promise and a threat. I have been proscribed compassion of the wrong sort, and so I am alone. I am invisible within you. Seeking companionship, I spend my afternoons before the windows of pet shops and strangers trying to decide. After all, I was told I could have everything. I thought this was meant to be a romance. I was delivered here in order to love you. I was delivered here and ordered to love you. If we could be friends, I wore this new dress for you. So the next one I wrote about the Big Bang, because I'm always thinking about that, as one does, um, and how um, I kind of was thinking about how after the Big Bang, um, all the particles in space are, are, are moving away from, from each other and, and, um, and that continuous process. Matter in retreat. The stars drift away from one another. Tonight, as every moment, you and I breathing so thoughtless, a living we make as we are made to, as I make another promise to myself to try to mean more to you, to call out across a great distance, but I am not loud enough. I suspect I have not enough protest in me. The arc of my throat awaits a tenderness or a brutality. And what are we to one another but a means to a meaning we haven't yet discovered two points of light on the inky dark sky, two paper boats on a black lake floating further away. Every day I awake, I roll over, I hide my head. We get smaller, our living. It's pathetic. I mean, it makes you sad. I'll close with this. Possession. I want to give you everything. This is called a sickness. By way of remedy, I am decorum bound, swept up and hushed. I forget myself. I lay my goods down, lay my arms down in the dust. Then it's a heaviness I borrow and am taught to own. What's mine is mine. What's ours is the stake, the hangman's rope. Then the cargo of dead unclaimed that I cannot contain. I cast my doubt upon the ground. I let the arrows of my longing fly toward the other shore. I want to save you. This condition is a viper's poison. I am bitten, my limbless sweet sliding under the brush. I arrived in the first world heavy, fated with this vision. I lay hold of everything in sight. My arms are full, the other shore besieged by longing. I am a sickness. I want to give you more. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to read one from my most recent book, and then I'm going to read two from a forthcoming book. So the two I'll read 
last are in manuscript form. Because that's really important to know. Now, this is a poem inside a poem, which I didn't realize until too late that that's cheesy. <laughs> the student said, oh, you can't do a poem inside a poem. And I'm like, really? I did it. Why should only cheaters and liars get double lives? That is, why should they get two stabs at it while the virtuous trudge along at half speed, half mast, half hearted? If an ordinary human can pull the fattest cash wad out of the slimmest slit and the fullest pudding out of the skimmest milk, then it might be possible to insert a meager life in Andromeda into, at the very least, our wide pit of sleep. Duplicity, after all, takes many, not merely two, forms. And the very idea of doubleness, twinniness, or even simple simpering regret or nostalgia implies a kind of Andromeda, a secret world, the hidden draft, the tumor sibling, the there are no accidents plane we could learn to fly. There's always that irreducible something extra to life on Earth. The way some men won't talk that way in front of women, not wanting to astonish us with their secret manness, as if there is another world bisecting ours, living among us like an unspeakable mold. The recent invention of the double-decker pill, equally effective on sunny and rainy days. On the wall, a plural mural, a diptych of Paula and Wally's. What fallopian and what fellatio? Like a Nan Golden Oldie, but an imposter. Okay, why not try to offer more squalor, no matter who the photographer? When someone's called a lifer, it means that person is trapped. A lifer has no life, but what do we call the rest of us? How terrifying it is to try trying. Which frying pan will best kill the loved one? Which will make the best omelet? The books on the bookshelves are touching themselves like virgins, but I've had them. <laughs> All right. In this economy... Don't you love that phrase when people start saying things like, well, in this economy, you know something... <laughs> bad will come in this economy. The economical ikebana of the lesser octopus is disarming. A sextopus holding its intelligence and ink in a concentrate. Not some sloppy octopus who suddenly freaks, so princessy, rich, driven to abstraction, not unlike flowers dropping their petals, because petals are garbage off the bloom not expensive anymore, thus going inside to find meaning. Cut the eyes, then, from the cruel ikebana of the racehorse. If a leg breaks, she can't bear her own weight. Long-blossomed head turns to glue, and the fortune zooms off like flies from a carcass when shooed. The tripod fell, so I had to cast about for my crutch to walk over, my bad left knee buckling to right it. I want to take a picture of the flowers I arranged after an Ikebana class, just one. I quit quickly, but still hope to learn to arrange beauty classically. Maybe I'm lazy or don't apply the rules to myself, or maybe laze is just zeal rearranged, as in my case. Even now, the clock we need to punch out on is too far away to plug in, so power collects in its hands. And I'll finish with, I have a time machine. I have a time machine, but unfortunately, it can only travel into the future at the rate of one second per second, which seems slow to the physicists and to the grant committees and even to me. But I managed to get there time after time to the next moment and the next. Thing is, I can't turn it off. I keep zipping ahead while not zipping. And if I try to get out of this time machine, open the latch, I'll fall into space, unconscious, then desiccated. And I'm pretty sure I'm afraid of that. So I stay inside. There is a window, though. It shows the past. It's like television or fish tank, but it's never live. It's always over. The fish swim in backward circles. Sometimes it's like a rearview mirror 
another chance to see what I'm leaving behind. And sometimes like blackout, all that time wasted sleeping. Myself, age eight, whole head burnt with embarrassment at having lost a library book. Myself, lurking in a candled corner expecting to be found charming. Myself, holding a rose, that I, though I want to put it down so I can smoke. Me, exploding at my mother who explodes at me because the explosion of some dark star all the way back struck hard at mother's mother's mother. I turned away from the window, anticipating a blow. I thought I'd find myself an old woman by now, traveling so light in time. But I haven't gotten far at all. Strange not to be able to pick up the pace as I'd like. The past is so horribly fast. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. I'm remiss in not addressing the fact that Natalie Diaz isn't here. She wasn't able to make it at the last minute, and she does send her apologies. At this time, we'll open up for discussion, and I'll get us started with a couple of questions. But those of you in the audience, do please feel free to raise your hand and jump in with questions at any time. So you have all, as, as I intimated before, achieved a lot and are very busy. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what drives you, how your writerly ambition was born, and how you maintain it. Aaron, would you like to start us off? Uh, sure. It was about, what was the question? <laughs> say that, seriously, say it one more time. Okay. You've all achieved a lot. Okay. You're super busy. We're very busy. What drives you? And how do you maintain that drive? No, it's a really good question. I just am like, fear? Um, (laughs) No, I mean, I I guess, uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I just have this idea that I'm going to die very soon and that I need to do a lot of stuff before before I lose the opportunity to be a person in the world anymore and, you know, make you know do do all the things that we get to do i mean it is a little when you when you read out loud the things that i'm doing what everybody else is doing i thought we're all nuts like (laughs) but there is this kind of um way in which you like for me personally i really want to i want to make our community better i want to be a good citizen in certain ways too that really matters to me what about you brenda I was just watching you answer that in awe. I know, I was watching. <laughs> you were watching me watch you. You put it really starkly, that idea that we're just going to die and that's why we do stuff. I, I don't know what on earth to say after that. But I, I do think that um, it's not so much that I would not be able to live without writing, but that I don't really know how to process the little or the big questions without trying to write something. I'm not saying that I write through in order to process any of those questions, but if I don't write something, even if it's addressing, you know, something seemingly irrelevant, like Ikebana, for example, having that get stuck in your head, even if it's something like that, I feel like that's how it stands in or sort of metaphorically represents the bigger questions that I'm too afraid to ask. I mean, I don't know about you, but there was a... I, I, I stay awake all night, like, thinking dumb, dumb things. Like, I think Roz Chast had a really great cartoon about it that was, like, the woman was up with a barrage of questions, like, you know, how do you make a magnet? You know, just like, you know, at 1 o'clock in the morning, just suddenly I have to know. And I feel like poetry at least allows me to get some sleep eventually. Uh, I feel like this is this is a question that I'm always asking myself when I've taken on like way too many projects, and I'm just like, why, why did I do this? But you know, I think that it starts with the fact that, like Brenda was saying about writing, you know, it's like for me, it's a part of what makes my life make sense and helps me kind of know why I exist in a way, like for me in this, like at least you know, my own personal existence, and. You know, I think that all the things that I do around that are a part of making that life possible for me and making it possible for writing to be the center of my life. 
So I think that's one of the reasons why I, I take on as much as I do, and that's what one of the reasons that I keep pushing forward. I do a lot, but I don't experience it as overwhelming or painful, actually. I, I always um, love poetry since as early as I can remember, and I just followed that love through college, grad school, always reading, always writing, and this is a life I wanted to wake up every day and read poems and write poems and talk with people about poems and teach poems and run a program in which people are writing poems and stories and run a reading series in which people are reading poems and stories, and I think I just feel fortunate to be able to get up every day and do this. Thank you. So I had formulated this as a much longer question, but, but we kind of addressed a lot of it. How do you do stuff that doesn't have anything to do writing? You know, having a family or having hobbies, going camping. <laughs> like, how do you fit that in, or, or do you? Are you ever not on the clock as a writer? No, I don't. I, I think, and probably everyone in the room as a writer, I mean, I think we're always on the clock. And the thing is, I, I've been asked that question before, and, and I, it doesn't always work, you know, as a mom. Um, I, I try, I try all the time, you know, to do all the things that I need to do, but I, I blow it a lot. <laughs> I try to prioritize what I'm going to screw up. So Jude is like, <laughs> like Jude, I don't screw up Jude, right? But I'm, but I'm always like not getting things done, not finishing what needs to be finished, and and just sort of scrambling around and. And I sort of feel it's important to tell other people that because I think sometimes women walk around feeling like everybody else is doing it right. But I think the secret thing is that, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. That's why they have those articles in Working Mother magazine, like every month, telling us how... You read that? Yeah, well, no, it's in, the doc- it's in the doctor's office. Okay. But they have those articles telling, you know, you can have it all. And the next month it's like, you can't have it all. Um, so I just, I just, I, I just don't. Um, I just feel like you do the best you can until you pass out at night. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you do make it to the doctor's office, so that's a good. Yes, priority. I do make it to the doctor's office. I mean, the thing is, there is no not clock, right? There, I mean, we all have the same. You know, I often think about. You read a poem um, after the hundred days after Obama's hundred. I always think, how the hell does he do everything? And he just triple like everything happens like all at once. Like so many things happen at once. I mean, I feel like many of us are you know doing many things at once. And in many ways, for me, the answer to this question answers the previous question. That poetry actually is one of the very few times I get to just only do that. It may happen rarely, but. I mean, at least I'm not on the phone with, you know, a pediatrician and trying to type an email and trying to, like, I don't know, s- stir something with, with, my, my foot. with my foot, I guess, with, on, my, on, my, on my floor stove. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, there's this sense of simultaneity always, and it's very, very busy. But there is, I mean, we, we all have the same amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day. It's not like someone who does less has more time. They're, they don't get more hours. My, <laughs> my temperament is frenetic, and I just like to be super, super busy. And the good thing is, is that poems are short, so they can fit into the interstices. And for me, like I have three kids, and I have a job. But I save an hour every morning for poems, and I try not to do email or make a dentist appointment or talk on the phone. Um, and I've written three books that way, so just kind of guarding that time. I think my answer basically is like I don't have kids like that, <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Like, and I haven't gone to the dentist for too long. So, <laughs> so who, in your opinion, are the great American poets? Uh, who's inspired you, female or otherwise, or even writer or otherwise? Like, like who's inspired your writing? Deborah, do you want to speak to that? So, when I was 13 years old, my mother gave me Anne Sexton's love poems. And I was totally hooked. It was a really heady book for a 13-year-old. And then from then I went on to read a lot of different things like Wallace Stevens and Keats and John Berryman and Frank O'Hara. And these two, for sure, Aaron Blue and Brenda, very big influences and among my very favorites. And I'm looking forward to Camille. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, I, this is like one of the questions that I always have a really hard time answering. Um, you know, I think especially like, cons- like thinking about in terms of like the great American poets, I, I just it frightens me to to try to make that kind of pronouncement, especially because I feel like 
when I, those kinds of pronouncements are made, so many people are always left out, and I don't want to be responsible for that. Um, but I will say that I also read Anne Sexton as a teenager and was like, this is amazing, she gets me, except for the part where she killed herself. Um, you know, and I, that, that's definitely somebody who's formative. Um, and, but I, you know, I, I think that for me, I just, I'm always reading and um, finding a poem that I, I'm, I'm in love with, that I, I admire. Um, you know, it's been... She's, she's one person. Yusuf Komenyaka is another person. Toy Derricotte, uh, Mary Jo Bang, Claudia Rankin. There's a, you know, there's a whole list of people that I'm encountering every day that I'm in love with and, and who are great to me. You know, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that on anybody else. Like, this is, these are who you should be reading. That's just you know, who have spoken to me in the past. Uh, I, I guess... Um you know, there was a there was a moment as a very young woman where I discovered Plath and Rich around the same time, and it seemed to me that those were two really, especially because of the way their lives touched and the very different outcomes for them. But I always felt like those were two really good balances for me in terms of women writers that have been huge influences. You know, and uh, Frank O'Hara for me was one of those people that uh, meant a lot to me when I was very, very young, just in terms of the way that he could translate his consciousness so absolutely, so indelibly, and such joie de vivre, and such a sense of pleasure and pathos. And so I guess those were, and Auden, I always wanted to be Auden. Um, I want to be a very old, pithy, gay British man. is what I want. Yeah, go ahead. I have a similar issue as Camille. I feel like every time I'm asked that question, it's a different list of people. But right now, I am particularly um, excited about this sort of new, this new sort of lyric or memoiristic, partly researched essay essays that are happening. I, I, I mean. I just think that was happening with like Maggie Nelson and Eulabis and um, uh, the sort of more politi- overtly political essayists like Roxane Gay. I just think there's a whole new crop of really powerful women coming up with new ways of doing essays, and I'm so excited about it. And, and that, that does stem from my earlier, you know, I used to love reading Roland Barth. I, he just seemed so. I, I like. I want to write like just a weird random paragraph. That seems obliquely related to the thing I think I'm talking about, but like somehow makes much, like much deeper sense than any straightforward uh, uh, description. Um, I, I really lo- always fell in love with fiction. And I didn't become a fiction writer because I'm just not that good at it. It's not easy. I mean, I, I love something I can't possibly do. And it was Jeanette Winterson and Toni Morrison, like just those big, beautiful stories of love and terror and loss that were just, you know, always captured my imagination. There are so many amazing poets. There are so many great poets that I, I love and that I'm reading, and they're all mushing together right now. In I my mind, In my mind, it's not, like, able to be articulated. <laughs> but you mentioned, you know, political writing, and I wanted to quote something that Margaret Atwood wrote in a 1976 essay called On Being a Woman Writer. She was describing an aversion she had to actually writing that article because someone had asked her to do that for an anthology. And she wrote, Some of my reservations have to do with the questionable value of writers, male or female, becoming directly involved in political movements of any sort. Their involvement may be good for the movement, but it's yet to be demonstrated that it's good for the writer. She changed her tunes radically, too, yeah, I think, because I don't think she feels yeah. that way at all anymore. Well, we love her, but no. <laughs> 76 was a while ago. She's so overtly political. Now. I mean, she has been... I'm, I'm shocked. Where is she? Is she here? <laughs> so, I mean, that did make me think about your work with Vita, Aaron, and, um, and, I mean, certainly your writing hasn't suffered. I think we can all agree that. So what are the ways that activism may have affected um, your writing life, if at all? Well, I had the um, experience, the very lucky experience of getting to know Adrienne Rich a little bit. And she, 
I had I had sort of this tough love moment with her where she read my first book when it came out, and she said many nice things about it, but she said, you know, is this is this who you are? Is this you know? I mean, she, I, I still have the letter somewhere, but she she was basically saying. Is this your consciousness? Is this who you are? Because this isn't my real strong sense of you, the person that I've been talking to. And I think one of the things that she was challenging me about a little bit in a very gentle and sort of teacherly way, well, it wasn't actually that gentle now that I think about it, but, you know, it was pretty direct, was, okay, there, there's, there was still a disconnect for me between being able to find a way to express I mean, I'm an innately political person. I've always been that way. I mean, at least, I mean, I think all people are. But that's always been something that matters a lot to me. And I come from a family where political activism of one sort or another was, you know, something we were taught and, and doing something for your community. And so she really made me think about what it was that I actually believed because I think at the time I was still... You know, I think I was 28 when my first book came out, and I was still, I was still very much trying to please. I was certain trying to please the literary establishment. I wanted to do things right, you know, and I was taught all of the, the sort of canonical men and who's, you know, of course work that I love and admire very much. But it, she challenged me to sort of put my money where my mouth was in a certain way, and then I've spent years trying to figure out how can I serve what I believe about poetry as an art and a craft, and how can I also capture something about that political consciousness that is actually my own. And so, especially with this book, I worked really, really hard to try to find a way to honor both things at the same time, if that makes sense. Does anybody else want to talk about it? Oh, and I do want to say something about Vita, which is that Vita, um, you know, Vita is... I don't think it in any way undermines, I mean, in any way undermines the idea that what we're talking about is art. It's women in literary arts, and what we care about is literature, right? And we don't care about quotas, right? I was just talking about this because the Vita Count just came out the other day, and it's like, we're not, we're not trying to assign quotas to anything. We're trying to open up people to multiple pleasures in art that they're missing the opportunity by only staying in their own little identity box to not like sort of reach out and see what other pleasures are out there. And I don't think that's antithetical. That's encouraging people toward art and not encouraging people toward a sort of empty, empty political position, I guess I would say. Anybody else? Well, I guess I think that like look, listening to that quote, I wonder if she means it's not good for the writer as in it's not good for what they're writing or if it's not good for the writers and it's not good for the, the perception that the public and readership has of the writer. Because I do think that there is, there has been a sort of like ghettoizing of, of artists and of writers who are engaged politically, especially if they engage politically in their work. And I, I find that especially when looking at marginalized populations, you know, being a woman and a woman of color, when you choose to engage um, in your work in issues that uh, connect to that identity, uh, people tend to kind of want to push you to the, to the side and, and not look at your work in the context of, like, the greater American world of literature, but rather, oh, yes, this black woman's going off about, like, her black woman issues. So I think that that does happen. Um, But, you know, I think that, like, what Aaron was saying, the idea of of opening up that question, that's what I want to do when I'm writing about those issues is not necessarily just just be in some empty political stance, but to really, like, open up and, and, and unpack that, unpack those questions. And I think that, you know, that's... To me, that's how I guess how like my activist thinking, like that that thought process, is, is involved in like my how my work um, is changed by that. I think it changes all of the work, not just the work that is overtly engaging with those issues, but everything that I'm the way that I'm thinking and the way that I'm writing, and expressing myself. But I do wonder about how that work is received um, by by the public and by critics. And I think that I, I feel like it's it's spoken about and approached differently a lot of the time. So, you know, I think that is an issue that exists. I think that the sort of the query about the quotation is sort of useful because I do think, I mean, I I always heard and believed the personal is political, 
And I've always gone into my writing practice with that feminist notion. And yet I, I went, and I know that Atwood certainly, you know, very much is, is all about that. And so I can't help but wonder if maybe one of the things she's talking about is something, if indeed she did say that, is something like, you know, when you, put, when you write something political, the backlash you might get or the criticism you might get might actually shut you down from, from trying to, and it might actually torque or change what you feel brave enough to write, or it might actually affect that and all the more reason to, you know, to be brave about that, right? I think one of the things that's so great about your poems, Brenda, is that the language is always so alive, you know, and um, vital, and sometimes, you know, poem is a fragile thing, and too much pressure can collapse and become flat, so, yeah, that's what I, it's hard, you know, you don't want to dissolve into polemic, right? I mean, it's definitely, and the other thing, too, is that when you're talking about politics, you're talking about, you know, people and larger groups, and... That is, there, that is us, but also some people feel like, you know, not entirely uh, uh, entitled to speak for other people. And so there you have a kind of silencing at the level of composition and um, a fear of kind of reprisals if you, um, if you sort of go outside of your comfort zone. But also, how do you, know, how do you write without generalizing, if, you're, if, that's what, if that's the vein you're going into? So there's all kinds of... You see there's all kinds of traps and obstacles there that I could see how it might shut you down. I remember reading that, and sorry to bring up Van Sexton again, but that if she was at a Vietnam War protest and asked to read a poem, and the poem she read was My Little Girl, My String Being My Lovely Woman about her daughter, and that was her protest, you know, and it wasn't overtly political, or it certainly wasn't polemical, but she was making her statement. I mean, I think one of you was saying how everything, every, all writing is political, I think, um, and I think that you know, in a way, what maybe people don't always realize is that whatever place you, wherever your role is in life, whatever privilege you have or don't have is a reflection of your context, you know, so that, and that context is political, so it doesn't necessarily have, it's not necessarily about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes always, but rather just looking at where you are and how, how you are where you are and what are the systems that work that place you there. So I think that, you know, one of the struggles that people have is, is like, how do I approach this issue and what's my place in it? Um, and that can be one of the reasons why people, people instead of having that, that buoyancy and that openness, they have, like, a flat line. And that's, like, that's what can kill, I think, that kind of work. It's also kind of... It's, it's strange to me because you see this in the, some of the panels here too. I mean, I think we're all still having this like big new critical hangover that's been going on for <laughs> yeah, Elliot, Elliot's you know, still got a grip on us and that's great because Elliot's a great poet. I just don't listen to anything he had to say about poetry um, because I don't agree with it most of the time. But the whole verbal icon and this thing like it always makes me think of like Superman 2 where the bad guys are stuck in those like CD jewel boxes in space and I, somehow, you guys know what I'm talking about. You've seen, remember Neil Babor Zod or whatever it is. Anyway, like so it's like this idea that somehow art is, is going to be disconnected from any aspect of culture, culture and we're still, we still seem to be like wrestling with this and I sort of feel like it's not just from 1976, right? I just had a PhD student who was talking about how um, he hates political poetry because literature should be this thing outside of, I guess, life? <laughs> Culture? I mean, I, I don't know. But, so we argued a bit. Anyway. <laughs> Any questions or comments from you guys? In a world that doesn't take women very seriously in general, how do you continue to take yourself seriously on a day-by-day basis? Wow, that's a profound question. <laughs> I just, I, I honestly, and, and I don't know why, but I never uh, got the memo about not taking myself seriously. <laughs> I probably take myself too seriously sometimes. But I mean, it was also having real role models. And, you know, coming from a family where I was raised to sp- speak my mind. And I was expected to you know, put myself out there, and I just never, and I'm, I can be sort of a blunt instrument sometimes, too, as a human being, I mean, there's also my secret poet, ouchy inside self, but, like, <laughs> I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not saying I never have fear, it's just my fear is less than my need to 
occupy the space that I think I deserve. If that, if, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean I get a bigger space than somebody else, but I certainly don't get a less space because of, like, whatever genitals I have. So I'm just not, um, I have, I, I mean, many friends are here, and you can say how many vices I have, you know them all, but, I mean, I'm, I'm not, a, I've never been particularly afraid, right? And maybe I've had the privilege of not being afraid. Maybe um, nothing bad enough ever happened to me, you know, to, to create that kind of fear. But I just sort of feel like, it was interesting when we, when Kate Marvin and I were, talking about Vita from the very first, we both said, you know, we could really get, we could just be turned into pariahs for this. You know what I mean? This could go very, very badly for us. But we were both like, fuck it, we got tenure. We're not going <laughs> to, well, I mean, we're not going to, I mean, we'll, we'll still be able to feed our kids and we'll probably be able to still pay the mortgage. And so it was a little scary to start with. And, you know, I mean, right toward the beginning, it isn't true now, but, like, within the first year of Vita, I got a death threat. You know, there have been some... And it's not... It doesn't seem to happen. But that in that first year, there was a lot of... There was a lot of nasty. Um, but, yeah. I, we, we, what, what's your guys' answer? Yes? I'm, I'm with... Just very briefly, I'm with you, Erin. I, mean, I had a great role model in my mother who was a philosophy professor, did her PhD in 1965, and so that, you know... I, I, the doors were open, and I was encouraged all along to do what I'm doing. But when somebody does, I'm going to ask a question. When somebody does get gets that way with you, or what's your reaction to that? Gets what way with me? You know that thing where you f- you feel like you're in one of those encounters where somebody is clearly trying to blow you off, or or diminish you in some way, or that there is some just sort of everyday, as we call them, microaggression going on around the the issue of, you know, sexism or whatever. Like, how do people handle that? I mean, I've got Vita. I can just write nasty things on a website <laughs> if I want to. <laughs> so do you? Yeah. I mean, personally, I just I don't even I barely notice it. I'm just like haters gonna hate. I don't. Even, I can't even engage. <laughs> but I mean, I think I'm like you. I just. I didn't. I never got that memo that I wasn't supposed to be able to feel significant. And it's only recently that I've. I've kind of like looked. Like I just feel like I kind of have had tunnel vision. I've just been doing what I'm doing, and it's only recently that I've looked up and seen people who are trying to like you know diminish me or something. And I'm. Like, I just don't care. I guess I just. You know, <laughs> I just don't care. I just keep on doing what I'm doing. You know, it's like they, they don't really have, most of the time, the people who are trying to, you know, be, be ha- you're, when you're having that kind of encounter, in my, in my experience, most of the time, it's a person who really doesn't have any power over me or over my life. So, and I guess I've been fortunate in that most of the time when that happens, it's a situation in which I just, I can keep doing what I'm doing and they, they aren't going to affect me. Um, I think the challenge can be when you encounter that in like a more like a systematic kind of challenge where they do have power over you. I mean, I think that's, it, that's where you have to really rely on your internal sense of how important you feel like you are and how important your work is. I'm silent here because I'm having kind of all these, I'm like flashing back to my life. Growing up with a, with a mother who's an immigrant who was treated by pretty much everybody that I ever saw her interact with, like she was an idiot, you know. She's an extremely educated, very articulate woman whose second language is English, and she has a very heavy accent. And everywhere we went, since I can remember, like she was just treated like she was stupid by almost everybody. And I, I think it shaped me completely in many ways. One, I was just like that, and I could not expect to be treated any better. And on the other, fuck that, you know, like I, in many ways, when I have been underestimated or sort of not taken seriously, I can sense it, I can see it from a mile away, I know it so well, it's not that I don't care, it's not that I, I don't notice it, I do notice it painfully, but it makes me very angry, and I, I cannot tolerate it, I, I remember lots of instances of that underestimating, of that undermining, it happens on an almost daily basis, and I just can't, um, I don't know if it's like a, now it's a defensive wall or exactly what it is, but there's, there's something about it that I know it so well, it's already inside me, it's like that you can't do it to me more, kind of. <laughs> sort of like it's already been, it's already been established, and um, I, I just sort of file it away. I, it took a long time for me, I think, to become, to become articulate, and if you haven't noticed, in some ways I'm still not quite entirely there, and that's 
something that I think poetry has been really good for in that those inarticulate spaces are allowed and that in many ways I, I chose poetry because I was allowed to have a strange relationship to authority, to seriousness, to I could make it up as I went along and, and find some agency in that. Does, that, does anybody else have any? Actually, I was, I was kind of curious as to what your public voice was in, in leading through all of that, because you are out here in a much more public voice than what I am. So the question was, how do you find your compass toward the truth? Well, I also want to point out it's not all the confessionals that get bashed, mm-hmm. right? It's Sexton and Plath, but Lowell and Berryman. Yeah. It's not like everyone's like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Robert Lowell and his little problems. And, you know, why doesn't he just go stick his head in an oven? So it's specifically the problem that people have. I think a lot of it has to do with anger. You know, that one of the complexions of Plath and Sexton, and not that they're the same, the same at all, but th- that there is an element of sort of owning themselves fully in those poems, and, and the anger is one of those things, and I think female anger is a very transgressive thing still, very much so. So I just wanted to, like, I could talk about, you and I could talk about this a lot in the bar about the word confessional and just what a stick it is that women get hit with. And I see so many women in my workshops. I teach uh, in the Ph.D. MFA program at FSU, and I see uh, particularly my female students. Well, the male students don't, don't get called this very often, but the female students live in fear of being called confessional, right? Because it is the it is sort of the worst... I don't know. Does, does anybody here feel like, be like, yeah, I want to be seen as confessional, <laughs> right? It's just become this, it's changed entirely from what it was into just another way of saying a personal female right. way of writing. It's code for mm-hmm. this sort of um, just, you know, PMSE emotional kind of thing. So I, I just wanted to point that out. But you asked another question about compasses and truth. For me, it's always about the language, right? I'm not interested in any kind of bald, on-the-nose, straight-ahead truth-telling. The language has to have some spin on it and some energy and has to be up to this, you know, capturing the immense strangenesses of all the experiences that I've had in my life. So, Yeah, like, it's all just mixing it up. You know, I, I mix a truth with a lie. Why not? I mean, it's a poem. Yeah, I can't arrest me. <laughs> it's not memoir, so I won't, you know, get my book recalled truth it's subjective so it can't really be called truth i don't know i mean if the the compass idea is very interesting i think i mean the more i write the more intuitive that becomes and the less i judge what i'm writing you know right now i'm writing a lot about adolescence and um popular music like old school 80s popular music like duran duran and i don't care i don't care you know if that's like a dumb thing to write about Yeah, I would agree. I think it's very intuitive. My poems often, they might start with a personal experience and then they tend to deviate from that. So I think for me it's about kind of as I'm going along trying to like see where I'm going and what that poem is about and, and, trying, to, and trying to really fully realize that whatever's happening within it. And that, I mean, I guess that's sort of a way for me of, it's an, of covering the truth of that particular poem. And that, that compass is, is just kind of, it is a little bit based on instinct. And I think on trusting yourself more and more with what you're doing on the page. Any other questions? We still have plenty of time. So the question was, when you're writing, do you have your identity as a woman in mind, intentionally, or any other I- identity? 
I can say in this most recent book, there was part of me that wanted to sort of explore and play. I've, I've got a poem that I hope is pretty funny in this new book called I Growed No Potatoes to Write About, Sir, which is a very affectionate riffing on Seamus Heaney's digging. And I've said part of my patter when I introduce it is that, you know, there's been this kind of, you know, some women writers get sort of bashed on for sort of, you know, falling into the cult of Plath or something. And I said, and I pointed out that there is also kind of corresponding, um, a certain kind of male identity poetry that is, that I call having a bad case of Seamus envy. (laughs) Where it's the the father and the dirt and the potatoes and oh, father and, you know, and oh, daddy. And I just sort of feel like it's a totally different daddy, right? It's there's Sylvia's daddy, but then there's, you know, daddy, I have your tools and I miss you. You know. And and that's cool. I mean I mean I mean in the wrong hands, you know what I mean? There's also beautiful poems that are in relate I mean you know what I'm saying? But so like sometimes when I think about something satirical like there are a lot of poems that have elements of satire because I tend to write from a satirical place often. And so that poem was very much thinking about, uh, that poem is thinking about the construction of identity and the history of the construction of identity. And now I sound like an English professor, which is what I am. And that takes all the fun out of the poem, but it's there for somebody who wants to dig around in it. So sometimes I'm conscious about personas and identities and, and sort of thinking about that. And sometimes I don't think about it at all. So it's actually funny because I until a few years ago I actually I had this moment where I was like I kind of forgot I was a woman. Like I don't I was so because as a black person I feel like that is always like the first thing on people's minds and it became the first thing on my mind when I moved to New York and I was working at Kaveh Khanum and thinking about blackness so much and like what does that mean for me? especially as a non-American black, and so I was so engaged with that question. And then a few years ago, Kate Marvin invited me to speak on this panel for feminist, like feminism on poetry, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a woman. That's right. I also have this other identity. <laughs> so, and it's, it's just, and so it's kind of interesting. I think now I'm thinking about that part of my identity a little bit more in my work, but for a long time it wasn't really on the, on the front of my mind. One of the things I think about, I guess, a lot in my poetry and in life is the kind of friction and, and space between one's interior life that kind of just exists in space and what, how one imagines oneself in that interior life and the interior world and how their physical body and presentation and existence in the world, how that affects their understanding of themselves and how their reception by other people in that physical body affects their perception of themselves. So I guess that's kind of the way in which it's affecting my work lately is that that question and, and engaging with that question. Well, your, your question for me brings to mind the fact that I think I was trying to avoid writing about certain things connected to female identity. Actually, I never wrote about pregnancy or childbirth or motherhood until this book because I was afraid of you know, sentimental poems or poems in which the material would feel overly familiar or flatter. There's nothing scarier. I mean, if you want to make the woman position scarier, turn it into the mom position, Uh. right? Like, that's really scary. Like, what stick will they hit me with now? Right. What was it? Kate Marvin has this essay about um, uh, not uh, winning a pretty prestigious uh, residency somewhere, but she was... She had a new baby, and, and one of the people had said that, that she, they were wondering if they should still give it to her because she would write those terrible mother poems. And it was like, oh, ouch, you said it out loud. You know? Mother is this, probably the scariest of the identity categories in, in womanness. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, in, in writing this book, wanting, again, to find a language that was up to cap- heightening the strangeness of you know, having a body growing inside you, having a body come out of your body, having a body eating from your body. It's pretty weird. You know, I, I think, too, you know, people are we're talking about intersectionality now a lot, too. You know, like, how do various aspects of people's identities meet? And, and sort of, and you mentioned this, Camille. You know, when I was in college and I was a TA, we had this huge introduction to feminism class at UC Santa Cruz. Everyone took it. It was amazing. Um, And then they had undergrads, seniors, teach the the discussion sections and you could choose a theme. And there was sort of the women of color section and 
you know, the sort of lesbian section, and, and I, the section I chose to lead, I, I called it the intersection section. I thought that was so clever. <laughs> as a bisexual person, as a, as a biracial person, I thought, okay, so let's talk about how all our identities intersect, and nobody showed up. Like, nobody signed up for my, my section. And I was like, so embarrassed. I thought, oh my gosh, this is the worst idea ever. But then it turned out that there was a clarification that we made, and people thought you had to be like of two things to sign up for it. And then when I said, no, 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 you can be anything. You have to just be interested in talking about how things intersect. And then my class was full. <laughs> and, you know, but I do think that I've never thought of, I mean, I, I've always, one can't escape being a woman if one is a woman, but it's not like that's all I, I've, no, no one's only that. There's no way, you know, and there's no way, there's no way any of us are reduced to our sexuality or to our race or to, I mean, we're not, we, there's not, we can't, it's not like we're not those things, but we're not, we can't be reduced to them. And that's sort of never the place we're going to be writing from, from the reducted, you know, the sort of the reductive, tiny little space of a category. We're always going to be bringing a fullness and an intersectionality and all kinds of different aspects that aren't categorizable at all into, in, into the writing. So we talked uh, earlier about about who inspired all of you guys, and um, each and every one of you inspires me so much. This has been such a pleasure to have this rich discussion here. I want to thank you so much. You should all stop by our booth and buy their books. Come back next year to get Camille's book. Yeah, the Copper Canyon booth is like a party. All day. It's amazing. And it's next to the Vita table, so yes. it's sort of like yes. it's a, party, it's a, party. a party alley. If you want to hear more of Aaron's <laughs> witty repartee, you should scoot on over there. With that, I guess I would say that you are all free to go and drink the comforting beverage of your choice. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.